Welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices and instead look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed at Niche. And my guest today is RJ Thompson, Director of Digital Marketing at the Katz Graduate School of Business and the College of Business Administration at the University of Pittsburgh. Before joining Pitt, he was a tenured assistant professor of graphic and interactive design in the Department of Art at Youngstown State University. And before that, he also taught at Carnegie Mellon University, La Roche University, and Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. And he continues to teach at Point Park University and the Community College of Allegheny County. In his what I assume to be rare free time, he also serves as the co-principal and creative strategist for Plus Public, a Pennsylvania-based social enterprise that focuses on cultivating community and economic development focused on communities and revival and is the president of the Pittsburgh chapter of the American Marketing Association. I'll just give an abridged version of some of his accolades as well. Uh, he's a National Endowment for the Arts Our Town grant recipient, a Best of Marketing Award from the Ohio Economic Development Association winner as for his work with rebranding Youngstown, Ohio, and he was honored with the Ohio Governor's Award in the Arts and Community Development, which is Ohio's highest recognition in the arts. Welcome. Thanks for making time to chat today, RJ. Glad to be here. Thanks, Will. I'm really excited to, to chat. Well, I'm going to start off here with two questions I ask everybody. What's something you tried that didn't work and what did you learn? What a great question to, to kick things off. So uh, I, I, I enjoy failure as a, as a teacher. You know, I enjoy trying and failing in higher ed because you learn so much more from that than when you're right. Before I became the director of digital marketing in CATS, I was the associate director of student engagement in the, uh, the College of Business Administration at Pitt. And part of my job was to connect with students and understand what their interests were in their throughout their educational career and provide them resources that uh, would, would aid them in their goals, aid them through throughout their, uh, their tenure at, at Pitt, but then also introduce them to new people, new ideas, new concepts outside mm-hmm. of the classroom. And um, one of those things that I wanted to focus on was uh, job outcomes. So in, in the business school at Pitt, we track, uh, I mean, we track all kinds of data uh, across the board, just a myriad of data streams. And a lot of those are focused on career outcomes, job placement, mm-hmm. what the salaries are. We track all this data because we need to provide this for the rankings that that we go at, uh, for, be it Bloomsburg or Newsweek, et cetera. My background is in marketing and design, and I wanted to focus on the marketing students and get them to understand that like, hey, there are more marketing students than there are supply chain or global management. Mm-hmm. As a consequence of that, it's more competitive. Because it's more competitive, you need to have a better understanding of how salaries break down, what kind of jobs you're going to get. We place a lot of emphasis and in, in pride in getting our students placed into employment very quickly after graduation. Uh, there is a, a very clear demand for, for our graduates. So I came up with a blog series that focused on, it was basically an infographic and then written summary of the infographic. I would ghostwrite the content, but it'd be written publicly by one of our entrepreneurs and residents, an EIR otherwise. And an EIR is very much an authority on uh, a particular industry or, or set of jobs. So like we have a marketing EIR, we have a supply chain EIR, etc. And this infographic would would show like the different types of job titles, the, the average starting salary, 
where a lot of people are getting hired from geographically, and it just didn't land with the undergraduate students. I don't know if it was too much to, to, to read, which it really wasn't. It's like four paragraphs, like 600, yeah. 800 words. They weren't tuning in for any number of reasons. And that kind of happens. Students get busy. Um, so I learned that doing this blog series on our website and distributing that and dispersing it through social media wasn't really useful for us. Um, instead, um, I converted that content into a more concise format and then uh, published it via Handshake. Okay. So it went directly to like 2000 students email inboxes and we saw like 30 to 50% open rates and we oh. started to see more uh, appointments in our career management career services uh, unit. So it was like uh, one of those weaknesses to strength situations, yeah. but it was really informative in how students preferred to be communicated with. And, mm-hmm. and that was, that was really enlightening. Yeah, that's interesting. It was much more. You didn't have to change the content. You just changed the format of delivery. You got to reuse all that work. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, from that content marketing point of view, we're always producing content and not all content can go to your blog or your news feed or your social media. Um, So that also helped us later on down the line determine what content types go across what channels. Mm Mm-hmm. So if it was very jobs focused, it went to Handshake because Handshake is all about jobs, career placement, and networking. Very smart. I wonder too, something like that, if even video would do like breaking it into small videos or if, if that wouldn't speak to what they want, where they want it. If we were using TikTok at the time, that, mm-hmm. that might have been the case. Uh, we might, and we're on TikTok now, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit that one. So yeah. thank you. Uh, <laughs> but our Instagram is is really just very culture focused at the time we would put manufactured graphics on our instagram and that pushes us down in, in the algorithm and uh at a certain point we just said no more graphic design on our instagram just straight photos either directly from the native app or you know we we load them in after the fact but they have to be photos and and that's that's bode well for us okay what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work Love this question too. In my position as the director of digital marketing, I am primarily responsible for generating ad campaigns to promote our graduate programs. Mm -hmm. I consider my position to be a mix of director of digital marketing and creative director. Subsequently, I spend a little bit of time every day uh, doing brainstorming. I design for my audience always. I don't design for the faculty or the staff or mm-hmm. you know folks at other colleges. I design for the students and prospective students. So I need to put my student hat on. For every single degree like this year, I had a goal of coming up with 30 different ad campaigns for our 12 degree programs. And they would focus on rankings, career development, student outcomes, personal mm-hmm. growth, professional growth, accolades and highlights. In some cases, it would speak to working professionals who are in a kind of in a slump career-wise. They they need to get into uh, the management tier in their in their businesses or organizations, and they can't get into that track. Whereas an MBA would help them do that. 
So I put together a lot of different ideas and really it just kind of starts with writing, but I'm not writing phrases and sentences. I'm just doing like simple keywords and maybe that's a bit of the SEO mindedness in me, but I just start out with, with basic keywords and they aren't always business terms, business vocabulary. It's emotional. It's mostly emotional words. Uh, So I focus on emotional context. Um, As a graphic designer, I was always trained to exhibit emotion through visuals. How can I convey an idea to you and influence you subsequently through line, shape, color, value, texture, etc. without saying a word? Mm-hmm. or even showing a word. So I, I love that challenge. So my my work stems from that emotional resonance point of view. So I'm writing down words that determined, grit, stuff like that, adjectives. And I use those and, and apply them to, to the campaign. So for example, like the part-time MBA that I promote, that is for uh, working professionals that have anywhere from generally three to five years of experience and Mm -hmm. they are new in their careers, but they're not so new. They're not necessarily green anymore. And they, they have an established understanding of the organizations that they work in, but they are also mature enough to know where they want to go next. And that's sort of the linchpin piece for me. Like they're still young, they're still new in their careers, but they're mature enough to know where they want to go. And I want to tap into that. I think about myself in that perspective, and then I write down words that that I react accordingly. So, for example, one of our campaigns is called Move Beyond the Middle. You know, that is a a short, succinct phrase that says everything you need to know about that degree, about that experience. It will get you to where you want to go. Need not say more. So I do brainstorming like that, but I also lead design thinking charrettes with our staff uh, and faculty. And in those charrettes, I typically have them collect verbally words, nouns, verbs, adjectives, and I can take all of those words and combine them into action sentences, calls to action, uh, things that people can execute on, but ultimately resonate with them. And out of those charrettes, I also can determine just exactly where the sweet spot is for certain messaging. What's great about this is that when there are more voices in those charrettes and then through the process, I narrow the focus, everyone is in alignment. So when a faculty member sees an ad campaign, they're like, I remember that, I get it. Staff member sees it, the deans see it, everyone's in alignment. So what's great about that is everyone's promoting the same messaging, internally, externally. I spend a lot of time talking with students, getting to know them, even if I don't have them in class. And I ask, introspective probing questions because I want to understand their point of view. One of the best things that Pitt has done for me is they've recognized my 13 years, 14 years in teaching and have kept me in the classroom in some way or another, because I'm able to use that experience to inform my work and make it better. And and folks are really recognizing that. And, and I'm grateful for, for that. And marketing students uh, are fantastic. But the, the last part of it is I get most of my ideas from reading books. Mm-hmm. I, I read all the time. I'm either reading a book or I'm reading articles or I'm reading good content 
on Twitter, uh, not the dopamine stuff that that <laughs> gets you through the, your feed. But yeah. uh, I'm reading dialogues and threads, and I get a lot of ideas from those types of things. And what's great about that is if if I'm like last week, I was kind of in a bind where I'm promoting an executive MBA degree. Executive MBA degrees are very hard to advertise. Um, so I picked up a book called Impact and Excellence. It's actually about nonprofit leadership and business organization. Just started reading that and I was able to, you know, find keywords and, and some phrases that I thought would create some resonance and then modified those and then implemented them into some campaign ideas. Right. So uh, my inspiration is really primarily coming from those places. And, you know, what's ironic is that I don't have any formal education in business, but I'm an entrepreneur. I've had four companies. So like I can talk the talk, walk the walk, but I've just, I've never had that degree. So I feel like my practical experience also provides a unique sort of perspective on business education. I'm so familiar with campaigns starting with here's our desired call to action or here's what we want to advertise even before they even think about what they want action to be, which is always concerning. But yeah. uh, that and then how do we incorporate emotion into it? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's so interesting to me that you flip that and you start with the list of emotions and then build off of that. Was that something that you learned by trial and error? Is that something that just sort of came naturally to you? What what was the development of that? So. I think it stems back to my background as an artist. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's always been an innate sort of organic trait that I have. So I often say like artists don't create art because they want to. Artists create art because they have to. That need for expression is a compulsion. It's a it's like a part of our spirit. We have mm-hmm. to get it out there. We have to do those things. And and that expression is all emotion. And and sometimes the goal is to express that emotion, however an artist does it, and to have that same emotion they felt received by the viewer. That's where I come from. So when I'm doing it like a competitive analysis and I'm looking at how ads are constructed across our entire industry, it's like, oh, great. There's another ad for a ranking. And oh, mm-hmm. um, there's the same catchphrase I've, or tagline I've seen used by two dozen different schools this year. Find yourself at X yeah. University. Yep. And it's just like this stuff is trite. It's, it's common. Like we can do better. So I've taken that artist approach and, and supercharged this stuff with, with emotional resonance. If in a single graphic, I can convince you to at least submit your name for like more information, mm-hmm. then I've done my job. And often I don't do more than that. Maybe it's just a series of images that suggest a, a particular ideal. And, and that's enough to get to convert. For some things, I have to create more supplemental content to reinforce those ideas and those emotional archetypes. You know, for recruiting undergraduates, I think that's so important mm-hmm. to tap into that, that emotional resonance and that idealized state. Basically say to them, like, we know what you're thinking. We know exactly what you're thinking. And ideally, when they see that, those ads from us, that's reciprocated. You know, the rest is history. So I was going to ask you this later if we had time, but I, I, I want to dive right into this now. So there was one, one of the things I'm working on right now is secret shopping juniors, like the junior comflow. What does that look like? And I am amazed 
and almost every single email is just visit today mm-hmm. and they all sound alike. And this is from 53 different colleges. Yeah. And they all basically look and sound the same. My thinking is where's the, where's the student voice? Where's the student stories? Where's, where's the why? Like that, that's my big one. Where, why should I visit? Don't just tell me I can visit. Why should I visit? Why should I want to, what should be, they do differently to bring in this emotion and give students the why of why they should care. And so they don't all look and sound exactly alike. I love this. So, and, and I've got some really great uh, sort of evidence here. So our sort of MO on attracting students to our undergraduate programs. So to give you some context, we just hit an all time high record enrollment in the undergraduate college where, I mean, it was, that's a hard thing to do right now. Yeah. In the history of the 27 years of the, of the school, like we hit an all time high right now. Mm-hmm. Why now? What is happening? And I think a lot of it has to do with, with our approach. I started a project called Pit Business Backstory. And Backstory was all about tracing the steps of a particular student from their junior year in high school mm-hmm. all the way up to graduation. And that would manifest as like a one-page microsite. It would feature the student It would show pictures of them in high school, sometimes with their favorite teacher. We would mention that teacher by name. Maybe it was a principal, but we would name these people and then reach out to those schools and say, hey, we featured you here. Hope you don't mind, but thank you so much for sending us an amazing student. But that was very intentional because it allowed our dean to make connections with all of these high schools and our admissions folks to do on-site visits and things like that. Pitt Business Backstory was extremely student-focused. We focused on their junior year of high school to their first year at Pitt, second, third year, internships, student organizations, study abroad, and then ultimately showing where they got hired before they graduated. Many of our students, the upper-tier students, get hired before they graduated. We just focus on that and it's their photos. They're authentic. They're genuine. They're not perfect. That is an optimal trait uh, for us. Like these, these pictures are not perfect. The the composition's aren't staged. Sometimes a little Mm -hmm. blurry. Maybe that's a poor scan. All of those qualities, visual or otherwise helped us build an authentic campaign in Pardot and Salesforce And what we were able to do was right now, I think we have about 30 different backstories because we do them in seasons. The pandemic obviously gave us a a good old gut punch on the the study abroad. We were able to to persevere over that because that content is evergreen. So we sent out a part of journey and we map the students to the particular geographies that we're targeting. Mm -hmm. So uh, a student can say like, oh, North Allegheny High School, I that's just down the road. I don't go to that one, but oh, the parents loved this. Yeah. The parents were thrilled. So we would send those out, but it would be a journey. It wouldn't just be a timed sequence of emails. It would be a choose your own destination. So you click on this email and it's only one part of that back, a single backstory. If you don't click on it, you get another one. You click on it, mm-hmm. you move forward. So it was this nebulous web of journeys. It was incredibly effective for us. Our, our, click-through rates were well above 50 for 50% on everything. Wow. And, and that helped recruit a, a lot of great students. So we're keeping that going. And that model really worked well for us. Coming back to that high school piece, like when I was tenured, I made it a point to become an advisor to art programs, to, to business programs, however I could get in the high schools. 
And I would go there. Sometimes I would teach a few classes, but I got to know the students. And one of the things that I realized is that no one wants to go to college alone, period. And a lot of the students that I met with in these different schools, I was able to recruit into my programs. Yeah. You know, that particular experience was very influential through everything else that I've done. So we don't tell them to visit. We just don't. While our facilities are tremendous assets for us, they're very nice. Everything is like state of the art. But like most schools have that. A lot of schools lean into their new facilities. My former institution, that's all they talked about. And you know what? That's also the thing that people cared about the least. Yeah. Yep. They honestly did not care at all about facilities. And I'm in a business school where we don't really have, we've got like great, amazing classrooms, but like we don't have labs. We've got a finance mm-hmm. lab with special software, but like those things don't really exist in, in my world. Well, and even that's just going to be what a computer lab, right? Basically. Yeah. yeah I mean, they, so like, that's not <laughs> visiting, visiting the university of Pittsburgh really means visiting the union the Cathedral of Learning, the Peterson Events Center, going to the football games. It, it, it's culture that exists well outside of our two buildings. Mm-hmm. And um, so we don't, we don't really tell them. Uh, and it's not entirely relevant. What is relevant to us is you're going to get an amazing experience whenever you get here and wherever you live when you're on campus. You, you just show up. Show up whenever you want. We'll be ready. But we don't actively mm-hmm. promote that. The greater institution does, however, but I don't yeah. really know how they do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that is an excellent point is not every program has a great reason. Yeah. I mean, students will want to see the campus, see the residence hall, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But from an individual college perspective, a lot of times that doesn't really make all that much of a difference. Like if I'm yeah. a math major, okay, you've got classrooms, you've got a place I can go and work on problems, but it's not, not really the same experience as if you're looking at chemistry or athletic training or right you know the 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 pandemic and online learning was uh, an equalizer in some respects like mm-hmm. for example art art schools yeah. art students realize like i don't need a campus i can just i can literally make art anywhere yeah why are facilities relevant to me oh i don't want to have to drive to campus to go into the sculpture lab when i can just do sculpture in my basement so like that that whole argument to me is just kind of moot and you know when you focus on like student clubs and organizations most of them are still meeting online because it's hyper convenient well that's a good point i mean so when when we've surveyed students so few of them want fully online education and yet so much of what they could do would be online they want they want to be there to make the connections have the experiences things like that does it is it rethinking residence halls so that they have more room in their room to do sculpture, to do, you know, are we rethinking essentially each room doubles as living space and learning space? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually a, a unique idea. I would, I would champion some, some of that. I think that that would have a lot of, uh, I mean, that in and of itself, I don't know if that really exists and if it does, to what extent, but that is a unique offering. You know, you mm-hmm. get parents and students on campus and you say like, well, here's our uh, our business dorm and we've got, you know, 
we've got conference rooms, we've got whiteboards, and you can do some of these things here. I think that's really appealing, uh, especially on the art side or practically any program. Not chemistry, though. Things will blow up. Uh, Yeah, that'd be a little problematic. But But, But you uh, also wouldn't have to live with mom and dad anymore. Right. Well, could you imagine like living in the dorm and then having a maker space there? Yeah. Well, so among all these many hats you wear, uh, is that as of a professor, right? So how would you teach us to write persuasively and to do a better job planning the messaging? I often emphasize this concept called self-concept. At one point, Will, you wanted to do something with your life and then you did it. And then when you got there, you realized it might not have been the promised land that you thought it would be. So your brain says, we need to do something else. And then you reach that goal and you move on. This mm-hmm. idea of self-idealized concept is something that never stops. It always keeps going, right? Especially when you're in, in your working years, in your career. We're always, I, I, I want to say all, but many people are always trying to get to that next step. And, and grow their careers in this idealized way. And the thing about idealization is that it never, whatever you do, it doesn't ever go ideally. Like ideally is unattainable. Yeah. But the, the journey to that realized idealization is what keeps us motivated, keeps us moving. All right. So you need to appeal to the idealized self, to the self-concept of your prospective students and, and customers, right? You need to use strong, resonating, and relatable visuals along with concise, emotionally charged language. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say, you can say a lot with words and you can say so much that you're saying nothing, right? So I often try to condense my concepts into like six maybe absolutely maximum eight word sentences. Like if I can't say it in six words, six to eight words, then I'm not sure it's worth saying. Um, But you can say a lot without words too. And I would encourage folks to think visually. You know, a lot of what higher ed is visually is just pictures of people, right? Sometimes it's people doing things. <laughs> and sometimes it's very contrived photos of students smiling at a camera on steps of a building. Yeah. And <laughs> most of the time it's that. Um, so I like to choose photos. And unfortunately, like just by virtue of how media budgets can be and student availability, like I think a lot of us are at the mercy of using stock photos from time to time. And that's just a part of it. So when I'm looking through photos or I'm, or I'm art directing a, a shoot, because I have a visual eye, I can speak a certain language with the photographers that they would understand that my colleagues wouldn't necessarily. So, you know, I'm trying to get like really dynamic angles, sometimes like really atypical stuff and a lot of photography that could be uh, considered idealized. With what we just said about higher ed photography, business school photography is just all people in suits. Yep. <laughs> not exciting at all. So like I make I all make, those students always walk around in suits in suits, right? Yeah. You, yeah. You, yeah. You can spot them a mile away. <laughs> Nevertheless, I'm trying to get more photos of students in regular clothes, you know, casual, even in branded university gear. Mm-hmm. A lot of that and trying to get them from different angles and uh, showing relatability and authenticity. So like 
sometimes I'll use photos that a photographer would not want me to use because it's not the perfect shot. And it's like, it's exactly why I'm using it because it's not the perfect shot. And we have our students write their own stories and the grammar isn't always perfect. The Mm -hmm. syntax has structure issues. We obviously fix some of that stuff up so that it's presentable, but we want to leave the, the, the personality of that student as intact as possible, even if at the risk of making us not look like the best Marcom unit. Because you, are, you and I are talking in a middle style language that's full of colloquialisms and contractions. We're not using this high style academic vocabulary. Yeah. That's how most people talk is middle style. And, and I want to communicate to them in that way. So I would say strong resonating Im- images, visuals, a good style and emotionally layered words or phrases or just language. Everything you need to say can be said within a sentence or less. And for a lot of, I think for a lot of writers, especially if they have a journalism background, that might be a real challenge. <laughs> yep. um, so like all the people I work with are, are writers and a lot of them have experience in journalism and they're just like, you got to stop doing this. Like we need a full sentence. Like you don't, you do not. You don't need it. Uh, We don't need to elaborate. We don't need to add filler words. or We don't need to add modifiers to these nouns to make them interesting. We don't need it. I'll always advocate for people going into the classroom and actually talking with students or even just pulling them aside and saying like, hey, buy a cup of coffee, talk to you for a half hour or something like that. A lot of those phrases that I use are inspired by those conversations. That shouldn't be such a novel idea. And yet, <laughs> how often do people spend the time to just sit down and talk to the students that you're surrounded by all day long? I can elaborate on why that is, or at least why I think that is. It is not a part of the typical job responsibility. It's not codified in the job description. Yeah, It's, a, it's an intuitive thing. It, it makes sense to just do. But in my position, I am technically non-student facing. I have no responsibility to liaison or communicate with any students whatsoever. I think that needs to change. You know, uh, marketers of any stripe, any level, they need to be talking with students. Student interaction must be uh, a requirement of the position. Yeah. I mean, where else would do you see, well, you're, you're in marketing, so you don't need to talk to the customer and know what the customer thinks and says, right? Exactly. Where else does that happen? <laughs> Yeah, the faculty are are talking with students all the time and they're great resources for this sort of secondhand anecdotal information. But as you know, the more people you talk to, the farther along that message is moves through channels, the more you lose. So Mm -hmm. just go straight to the source. And not only that, but the students appreciate it, especially if you give them like swag and stuff like that. Or even just like, like for me, I, I am in a privileged position where I lead the American Marketing Association. I'm in the classroom. I'm, I'm connected within the, the tech spaces in my community. I won't say I'm a public figure, but I, I kind of am in some respects. Yeah. And I like talking with students for the reasons of my job, but then also saying like, hey, you know, I don't have a t-shirt for you. And also that's kind of pandering. I'm not going to mm-hmm. say like, here's a t-shirt. Thank you for your time. Yeah. I'm going to say, you know what? Uh, I loved hearing your story. I got someone in the profession that you can talk to. Here's their contact information. I'll bridge this. And then that's how relationships form. Those relationships, that networking has such significant value, especially to business students, because they don't know much of anybody. 
mm-hmm. that you could have opened up a door for them that got them an internship six months from now that got them a job later on. So there's some some goodwill at the end of that exchange that you could potentially offer them. I mean, that's great because everyone, they don't need more pizza and, and t-shirts. They get enough of those from every club and everything. Yeah. So. This guy needs more pizza yeah. though. <laughs> <laughs> You know, where where in the nurture process are you seeing student and alumni stories being the most effective? And then how do you think they can be used to better build affinity with the with the institution, with whomever you're you're marketing for? So citing that pit business backstory, we employed stories at every aspect of the funnel, even after they've applied and enrolled. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. In the pit business backstory model, we designed journeys that sought to get students to apply and then ultimately enroll in our school. And we did that on the back of the student stories themselves. So the experience that the students cultivated during their time at Pitt through what we already offered them is is really like an efficient use of resources and, and, Mm -hmm. and work. Telling those stories through the lens of the student that experienced it, that really enriched everything for us. Students don't want to hear from the director of digital marketing. They don't even necessarily want to hear from the faculty, let alone staff. You know, they want to hear from other students. I think that that is a self-evident truth, an axiom uh, that many of us are, are familiar with. But in every step of that funnel, we told a different story. You know, we would mix up the backstory. So it'd be student A, student B, student C, then it'd go back to student A, but it's a different piece. Maybe it's a video piece. So we mixed up the the media content as well. And that helped paint a, a broader picture for the students that we were looking to enroll. Additionally, we want to cultivate this sense of idealism with the pit business experience. So when students enroll here, they have an expectation of, oh, I'll do the internship, I'll do the study abroad, I'll go to career management, I'll have excellent academic advisors, and then they get here, and then they have those experiences, it's self-reinforcing. So then they would later on perpetuate that, essentially, that branding of that experience, um, and then later we would cultivate them and, or convert them into a backstory and repeat mm-hmm. the process. So there's an aspect to this where that whole backstory funnel was really inspirational towards our not only our product design, which, oh my God, I can't believe I used that phrase. That is, <laughs> that is something that academics in higher ed do not like to hear. But our product design, our experience design, our customer experience design, mm-hmm. And that was charged by the students. So like we would have academic advisors say like, yeah, the student was talking about backstory and how that brought them to campus. And like, we should talk more about that. And it's like, yeah, you should. Absolutely. (laughs) Please do so. More of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the units become self-referential and self-supporting. And then all of a sudden the the larger image in, or the larger message rather in at least the business context is, we get all of these things and we know that for fact, this is where you go to get that. This is, this person got that. So it, it essentially provides proof that these things happen and they can happen mm-hmm. to our students. And then it does. And that's why our rankings are really high, not just mm-hmm. many factors, of course, but that's one of the factors why our rankings are so high because we do what we say and we say what we do. Reminds me of, uh, of what was it? Horton hatches the egg. 
Is that what I meant? I meant what I said. Elephant's faithful, 100%. Well, you know, I have some of those Dr. Seuss books memorized by yep. uh, virtue of reading them like a million times to my daughter, particularly yep. Fox and Socks, but uh, we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about continuing some of these stories, even after the student enrolls, how much of these storytelling and the marketing is targeted just to prospective students and how much for continued engagement, retention work, internally yeah that's a that's a good question so we definitely are more we definitely front end our comms for more prospectives uh prospective uh students when students are here they're enrolled there are a number of measures that that we have that not only provide them value they get something from us but they also understood that they're being heard and then we get that data so there are a number of things that we do so we often share a lot of student success stories we share news about student clubs and organizations that kind of that's common, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the things that we do, however, um, we have a, a twice annual career conference just for pit business students. It's a big mm-hmm. ordeal. There are a ton of fortune 500 companies there. It's a really big deal. Students are in their suit and tie. They're looking good. That doesn't mean they have all of the assets that they need to be successful at that career conference. So what we'll do is uh, maybe, Two, two to three times a year, we will host um, photo sessions, headshots. We'll pay photographers to come in and literally take thousands of photos of our students. So they come down. Well, first off, they fill out a survey. Then they're added to a list. They come down, they get their picture taken, they get those photos for free. And they use them on their LinkedIn profiles, their mm-hmm. portfolio websites. Um, but then we use them in our ad campaigns. Um, and that's part of the relationship. So now we can say, hey, student, you filled out this survey. Thank you. You also acknowledge that you'd be willing to be featured in an ad. Mm-hmm. Come down, get your picture taken. And then later on, we'll, we'll show you in an ad. Students love that, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if, they, if they're having a great pit experience. and. Our Facebook ad campaigns, will do hundreds of them based on those photos alone. So I have to Photoshop hundreds of images when we do that. When we do it every spring in advance mm-hmm. for the fall semester, our numbers are astronomical. I think we'll spend like twenty or $30,000 just on Facebook ads targeted to parents and prospective students, but generally the prospective students are mostly on Instagram. They're not necessarily yeah. on Facebook. The parents are on Facebook. So so yeah, that keeps us busy, but our numbers are are incredible on that. And then of course we hit our all-time highest uh, you know, enrollment and mm-hmm. it speaks for itself. I laugh hearing that because I get to I you know, I managed digital marketing for years and, and all that. And when people will hear twenty or thirty thousand, oh that that's way too much. I can't spend that. It's like, okay, but if you have a good campaign, you enroll one student Okay, what's your four-year revenue for one student? 2030 is not bad at all. (laughs) So, you know, a a great example of that is at Pitt this past year, we created a new program, and it's relatively unique within the region, and I'd say the mid-Atlantic states at minimum, and that's the Executive Doctor of Business Administration degree. And this was exciting because I got to build, help build the, the, the platform for this degree from the ground up, from scratch. Our goal was to recruit 20 students and I built a microsite. We did some social, we did some strongly optimized SEO and SEM. 
And not only did we meet our quota of 20, but we exceeded it by five. So we were enrolled 25 people. That I feel is like equivalent to, oh, you know, $5 million. And our expenses on that were under, I don't know, let's say under 15,000. Wow. That's an incredible (laughs) ROI. Yeah. That's why you optimize your your website, your content, your SEO, your SEM, all of that stuff. Yeah. And and so often though someone will say, Well, I no, fifteen thousand is way too much. Well, not when you do it right. Look at that ROI. Give you fifty grand, give you a hundred grand. I mean mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't I don't have a number, but I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what my DBA budget for marketing is gonna be this year. Yeah. I mean <laughs> you you have the uh, you have the data to ask for more. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we we're talking about all these these additional things that can convince and convert, right? So what about these proof points? Or mm-hmm. at least I think of those proof points. You probably have a, a more technical correct term, but I think those proof points in terms of reviews, third-party news, rankings, these are all persuasive. How do you think it's best used though? So if you were to ask uh, faculty where we should start, they would say rankings. You, you know, you ask staff, they might not say rankings. They may say return on investment. You know, so it's going to differ relative to your internal influencers, but then it's also going to differ to your to your external demographic targets. Oh, the most important is though, what does it matter to students, right? To the parents. What does it matter to the uh, students? So yep. like on the undergraduate level, students don't care about rankings. Parents do. So when we target parents, rankings, rankings, rankings. When we target students, it's all about culture and reputation. Brand, I mean, they want to go to a good school. Pitt's obviously mm-hmm. recognized. So there's culture, there's rep- reputation. We focus a lot on testimonials, but we don't focus on reviews. Uh, generally speaking, we've got we've got it fairly good. We're resting on our laurels, and we have, there's a relatively positive sentiment across the board. Those that are not happy with their experience, um, they're few and far between. But I think for reviews, um, we would focus on reviews related to rankings. However, that's at the undergraduate level. On the graduate level, reviews are really important. So like MBA enrollment across the country is down. A lot of that is because industry needs people now. They need young people. They pay them less. They get them into positions. And then they eventually will migrate out to go get an MBA or they'll be groomed for you know, leadership positions without it. Reviews are really important important for for graduate business programs. Our rankings are our bread and butter because by the time someone is focused on a graduate program, they've matured to the point where they realize like, yeah, I want a good school with culture, but I'm here to work. I'm here to focus. I'm here to pad my resume up with the best credentials possible. Rankings mean the world. When I'm reading about MBAs on Reddit, so many threads on Reddit are about like the top ranked programs and, and people are obsessed with applying to and getting into the top ranked programs, even if they don't choose that school. Like someone could yeah. get into Harvard and be like, yeah, I got into Harvard, but I'm going to Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they're focused on that. And I think that that is informative for us, but we actually don't advertise on, on Reddit. Um, and one of the reasons for that is, you know, we, we are in the conversation nationally for, for our graduate programs. We're in the conversation. People are aware of us. We have awareness. We may not always be people's first choice, but I would say we're probably in like their top 10, sometimes top five. 
So we're in, in the picture. But those threads I mentioned on Reddit, they're full of cynicism. Hmm. There's just a lot of cynics in the threads. And I think a lot of what they're, they're saying, some of it is, is valid and is certainly a concern, but a lot of it is also very superficial. Uh, it's like, yeah, I just, I want the top ranked program and I want to get through it like immediately. And it's like, there's so much more to it than that. Yeah. Do you want to check a box or do you want to get the educational experience? Do you want to, are you focused on the, on the piece of paper or are you focused on what you're actually learning? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think for, for some people it's, uh, what's on the piece of paper and what's the rank so that I can go to X corporation that I don't want to work for anyway, but I'm chasing a salary and I need mm-hmm. that. I need that rank. You know, rankings are important for parents and on the undergrad, but they're really important for, for graduate students who understand the value of the, de- the degree that they're going to purchase. And, you know, third party news isn't as important. It's in our periphery. We're aware of it depending on what it is and its connection to Katz Graduate School of Business or uh, the undergraduate school, then we may include it in, in our comms funnels. But um, I am often critical of our degree products, our degree programs. There I go with products again. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm often critical of, of their design, their cost, their outcomes. It's because I have that maturity and awareness of what graduate degree programs are, how they function, what they're valued at, et cetera, that I can ask those questions. And it's mm-hmm. objective. I was a PhD student once and I was really excited about the program. Everything mm-hmm. about it was great. The faculty looked great. I, I interviewed faculty. I interviewed staff. I talked to everybody and I'm a month into the program and I'm just like, this is not for me. What, mm-hmm. what happened? Uh, what, where was the, the disconnect, the dissonance? And for me, it came down to the job outcomes. I entered into a PhD with my terminal degree. The terminal degree for the art and design field is an MFA. So I have the, the, essentially the, the equivalent. I was interested in, in teaching in other programs at other universities. So I thought I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into the community engagement stuff and, and see what can come out of that. So um, I'm a month into the program and I ask, what's the admission rate? What's the graduation rate? But then I ask about the job outcomes. I'm like, so when people graduate from this program, I asked this like the first week, when mm-hmm. people graduate from this program, what do they do? And, and my professor said, well, they, they go into teaching. And I'm like, that's it? Like there are big corporations that hire community engagement people to do amazingly transformative things. And uh, you're telling me that these people with like myself that already have master's degrees just are getting the PhD so that they can say that they have a terminal degree and then they go and get tenured in the specialized area of their master's degree. Like didn't make any sense to me. So I, I washed out. Well, you also get to be called doctor. Yo, ooh, yeah. I, hey, guess what, everybody? I get called that already because students, <laughs> by default, call everybody doctor. So I <laughs> that's a lot to unpack, but yeah. So after the application's been earned, the students applied, you know, be it undergrad, grad, and students are moving closer to enrollment. How does that communication change, right? How do we keep building that affinity, addressing concerns? Because a lot of times you see, oh, someone in deposits, Comflow ends. Yep. And that's, there's a lot after that, right? Yeah, that's where the comm flow should continue. 
I have a lot of different ideas on this, um, but I think that from my point of view and to, to reference an earlier point I made, like no one wants to go to college alone, it's, you know, at, regardless of what level you're at, you want to be welcomed by people that you know. Mm-hmm. They could be peers, they could be staff, etc. You want you want to be welcomed into the community. You don't just want to show up to the community and hope someone welcomes you in. So I think personalized emails uh, are important. If you have to use a variable campaign to do that, fine. But I would actually charge the individual units to make individual email outreach. Like literally type an email, reach out to the student. No two emails should be the same. They don't have to be long. You know, there can be some some copy in there that you repeat, but mm-hmm. like try to personalize it. At Pitt, I think that this is really important that, that we should do it. And to an extent, we don't. The comms flow, the comm flows do end, but I think we should do more of it. And for a simple concept called the Pitt parents, we have a lot of international students. They come to Pitt, they, they come to America, they don't know anybody. They're just hoping that they find the right people, the right building, and then build culture from there. So a lot of students, in fact, my, my work study, he has what's called a pit mom. And that's generally uh, a staff member who goes above and beyond the call of duty to really help students through their entire academic career, well beyond the, the responsibilities of their day job. That doesn't even have to happen within like the pit business unit itself. I would love to see more of that. You know, I would love to see like staff, even like me, I'd be more than happy to reach out to a couple dozen students and say, Hey, be happy to, to buy a cup of coffee or tea. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's just chat. And if you ever need anything, we're here. That's the thing. Like I think in pit business, all of our staff and faculty recognize that we're here for all of the students. It's not like that everywhere. So I, a student could reach out to me and I have no student facing responsibilities but I'm still going to help that person. And I think a lot of that speaks to the helpers in higher ed. So many people in the higher ed space are the helpers. They are mm-hmm. genuine and in, in they're wanting to help. They, they want to help people grow and succeed. And I think that higher ed is ex- exceptionally well known for that. But nevertheless, we could be doing more communication, even if it's simple things like, hey, you hungry? There's a place there. You know, or where's the nearest grocery store? Like Oakland, where Pittsburgh is at, it's considered to be a food desert. Despite the fact that like tens of thousands of people flow through Oakland daily, there's no supermarket. You have to go to the next neighborhood over. You have to take a bus, especially if you're a student living on campus, you got to take a bus to go to a, to go to a a grocery store. And, and that's just remarkable information. Like as simple as that is incredibly useful. And sometimes you need to over communicate, be human, be real. No one wants to arrive at campus alone. We have a, a, an opportunity to create lifelong connections. And some of those people are going to be very wealthy someday. And they're going to remember the kindness of some lone staff member, uh, you know, buying them a cup of coffee and saying, welcome to the U S and all of a sudden now there's a building named after them. I mean, you got to it a little bit there that typically people, not always, typically people get into education because of this deep interest in the next, right? You're, you want to help support these people who are going to go out and make the impact on the next group of people, mm-hmm. right? You want, you want to have that connection, the, the lifelong learning connections there. 
So I'm curious, what has kept you in education? When I look at this long list of awards and your your uh, community involvement and, and so much of your work being on these things that, that are really outside of education, and yet you have such a deep passion for education, what's yeah. kept you here? You know, uh, yesterday someone told me, they're like, a uh, former supervisor said, hey, he pulled me into his office and said like, hey man, uh, some truth for you. You're an extremely high performer. If you left higher ed today, you would have like a $150,000 salary tomorrow at some corporation. What the hell are you doing? That It's a high compliment, nevertheless. But I think for me, the, the story of my life and the experiences that I've gained throughout it have positioned me to to be really effective in in higher ed. I stay in higher ed because I know that I can have a direct influence and mm-hmm. and create benefit for so many people. I've been teaching for 14 years. I've mm-hmm. literally created opportunities for thousands of people. Like that is an incredible legacy unto itself. Higher ed has provided me with so much so many opportunities to to grow myself and and provide for my family that, you know, I think that I want to help people realize that higher ed is not some place that you go to, to have, you know, the salaries are lower, but you'll have a higher quality of life. And while that may be true, um, you can still make it a, a lucrative opportunity for yourself. I have every every sort of intention of exceeding my station right now. Like Mm -hmm. I want to be AVP of Marcom, or Mm -hmm. if I go back into the faculty, I could go back into the faculty track. There are so many things that I can do in higher ed. I could go spin off a startup right now, but you know, I think that higher ed provides a lot of opportunity for me. It's provided a, a lot of personal growth. I've created a lot of change and impact. And I don't know if I could have that same type of experience in, in a corporate situation. That is important to me. I've left high paying jobs because I wasn't satisfied with the work or the impact I was making. And that's, that's a bold move, a bold statement mm-hmm. to make. I found that I can still, I can have that impact and I can still innovate in higher ed when other people think that it is not possible. And it's because of that mentality and the subsequent work that I do that I have people from all types of universities and colleges reaching out to me asking for advice or to work on projects. And, and that's very gratifying. Um, I, I definitely want to stay in higher ed for, for the rest of my career if I can help it. And this position that I'm in now as the director of digital marketing will give me a lot of longevity, um, but mm-hmm. also opportunity to, to grow that lad, up that ladder. And, and it's interesting you mentioned there the doing the things that people didn't think that you could do in higher ed, right? Yeah. And I look at, at your work outside, working on communities and, and revival and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the connections between, because I mean, who, who often thinks of, well, we're going to market the town or we're going to market, we're going to rebrand Youngstown, Ohio. We're going, these are two areas that often people think of as these almost, almost monoliths, right? That they yeah. are what they are and you do things a certain way and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, I think that that's what's inspiring for me. Maybe that's what I'm looking for is like sort of a change agent, change agent opportunity where when I was in Youngstown and I I rebranded the city, 
that was a, an extremely big deal. Um, not just for myself, but that entire community. Mm-hmm. And, and I love so many of those people up there. I've had so many great experiences, but it was an example for, for me, rebranding Youngstown was an opportunity to change the narrative, to, to create impact and empower people to sort of take control over their own future and the future of the community in which they live. And I, I see a lot of parallels between that type of work and, and what I do in higher ed, because it's all about empowering the individual at the end of the day. But I was able to, to take those lessons into the higher ed space and, and have some innovation occur as a result of that. I'm also able to, to, to cross-pollinate uh, in the classroom with that as well. So for example, I taught, uh, brand, so I taught brand management in March 2020 when we were all sent home. And the, the, the final project of that class was to rebrand the, the, the city of Hermitage, Pennsylvania. And Hermitage was basically between Erie and Pittsburgh, and they were trying to grow it as as a community, but they also had like a Penn State annex there, extension, and then they had this tech startup. But Hermitage's claim to fame is that it has the world's most effective and innovative sewage management plant. Okay. Of all things, right? (laughs) Um, And this brings like, a ton of people to Hermitage every year to see this model, right? And so the students uh, got an opportunity to rebrand Hermitage and they could say like, yeah, I did a project that that helped that community launch its economic platform. That's awesome to be able to do that. And even this semester, my students are going to develop uh, an advertising campaign for the uptown neighborhood of Pittsburgh, which is between Oakland, where Pitt is, and downtown. It's one of the oldest historically black neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, but it's also the top revenue generator because it's home to a hockey arena, it's home to a few universities, and some other high revenue generating places, uh, businesses. So the students will get to be a part of that they're able to grow their careers as well. So I see a lot of cross-pollination, but uh, Plus Public itself was actually created because of the work that I did as a professor at Youngstown. Okay. And, you know, even with Plus Public, I do some work for, for universities and doing enrollment campaigns and things like that. So it's been cool to see higher ed as a tree create all of these different branches yeah. into my life and, and how it's provided benefit. Yeah. That's really interesting. I had three goals. At one point, like I made a bucket list for my career, right? And I said, there are three things that I want to have happen. One, I want to rebrand a city. Check. Mm -hmm. Two, I want to design something that is then sent to the moon. I got so close. Really? I got so, yeah, I designed a patch for this additive manufacturing company and they had it made. And I don't know if I, it was supposed to be sent to the moon on one trip with a piece of equipment and uh, it didn't make it for whatever reason. So missed that opportunity. And then the third thing was I wanted to design a manhole cover. Okay. As trivial as that may be. That's something everyone wants, right? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) well, I had professors in the past say like, yeah, I I would just love to be able to design like a manhole cover because those things last for hundreds of years. And my, my mentors, none of them were ever able to do that. And I was actually able to do that. So like I could be 120 years old 
and go to Hermitage, Pennsylvania, look down and see that manhole cover there. And it's just like, that is why I do what I do. That type of impact and permanence and the, all of the ideas and energy that I put into something manifests into something that can last for, for so long. I think that's a, a beautiful thing. Pitt has, I think like 300 Marcom professionals working at the university across all of its satellites. I would be inclined to invest in positions that were a blend of marketing, communications, and some type of advising. So when I came to Pitt, I started as the Associate Director of Student Engagement. And ultimately what my job was, it was a marketing position. It wasn't labeled as such, but that's what it was. My job was to promote opportunities for student growth to students. Mm -hmm. The end. Um, and what they found with me was that not only was I a heavy, just an incredible extrovert, but I was, I was liaisoning with these students in a way that wasn't just digital. I would find them. I would create conversations. I would go to student clubs. I would provide them opportunities for growth. I would just be there as a sounding board to hear problems or review resumes, really kind of a catch all sort of service. I think that that is a right kind of resource, more student engagers. These student engagement folks, if the if the jobs are designed right, could be absolute linchpins to every unit within a college. They would have their feet on the ground. They'd be on the street with the students, understanding what they care about, what they don't care about, what they need, what they don't need, et cetera. We need listeners. This is essentially social listening for the student body. We need student listeners, right? those student engagement positions can be custom tailored to the unique needs of any particular college. There needs to be a person embedded in the student culture and understand it on an immersive level. We can create so much impact and opportunity for our students if we chose to listen to them on, on a really deep level. I have one last question for you here, but but I have to say two things for for the listeners. We we were talking before we started recording uh, and we're we're talking about how well we want to make sure we try and keep this to 30, 45 minutes. I'm I'm very glad that I failed miserably at that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say that I've enjoyed this, but no one else gets to see this right over right over RJ's uh, shoulder. There is a Ron Swanson glaring at me. The the Ron Swanson pillow has has been staring me down this whole time. And I've smiled every time I've looked at it, but I don't, no one else gets to see that. <laughs> I, I use it on all my zoom calls mm-hmm. and, um, it almost always stops people in their tracks. They're like, RJ, who's on your bed? So there's a bed <laughs> behind me. And like RJ, who is that person on your bed staring at me? Yeah. And then With I have the to, square I, head. <laughs> yeah. And then I get to put in a, a, a promo for parks and recreation. Yeah, and then that delays the the Zoom calls because I nerd <laughs> out on parks and. Uh, <laughs> yep. But the the last thing I want to say, you know, we're really good in education in general of starting all these new initiatives, right? Mm-hmm. Bringing on a new partner, or we're going to add this, do that additional campaign. Let's also run this. What's something you think people need to stop though? So I would say that there's a fair amount of universities out there that utilize third-party vendors for their advertising and enrollment campaigns. And, and that's fine. That's a fine practice if, if that's the best fit for your institution. What I would say to that in relation is don't accept ideas you've seen before. 
for example, when I was promoted and transferred over to CATS, I made an overture to remove all of our advertising vendors. They need not be named. I wanted to bring all of our services in-house, and I wanted to train our staff on providing those services that we were paying an extreme amount of money for. There are vendors that, that we do use that are a better need for us, either because of a skill gap or they're more effective. Vendors have their place. I'm certainly not criticizing them. But I do so when they don't produce satisfactory results. I, I'm looking at advertising all the time, and I just think a lot of it is very common. Every institution practically has the same see yourself at X yep. university. And it, that's got to go. And, and students are very aware that they're being advertised to. They don't have any interest in the pedestrian common sort of ideas like see yourself or be yourself mm-hmm. at whatever. No, like make an ad campaign that says I can make something specific at this college that I can't make anywhere else. Or I can learn this one specific thing that will put me on the track to another thing. It's all about specificity. Stop being so generic um, and, and level up. Higher ed, That I have to stop in my tracks because one of the things that interests me the most about education, and it's baffling to me, is that why do we have to advertise education? Like education is something that we as humans do by default, whether you like it or not. Like if you say you hate learning, no, you hate reading books. You learn every day. You can't avoid that. You learn every single day, every second of the day. You just don't like one aspect of learning, right? I've always just been mystified by why we need to advertise education and to the degree that we need to. And advertising it is not about education. It's obviously about the institutions and, and it's a business. So how do we how do we advertise the the promise of education without being generic? And you lean into your brand ideals, you lean into your assets, you mm-hmm. lean into the assets of your community. For example, a regional university just dropped their two year MBA, and we have a two year MBA at Cats, which has given us a significant opportunity to fill the void in those markets that that institution deserted. And then the better question became when we looked at job outcomes from the two-year MBA, like, oh, okay, well, you know, the the job outcomes could be stronger. What exactly is happening here? How can we promote a two-year MBA when this other big regional school said it's not worth it? Mm -hmm. You lean into the ABCDs, asset-based community development. You lean into Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh makes our two-year degree, period, and the opportunities found within it. So now we're embarking on a campaign where it's like, do your two-year MBA in Pittsburgh, but you can become these things through this process. And and we're leaning into, oh, well, UPMC is here, Highmark Health. We've got Mm -hmm. Apple and Microsoft and, you know, we've got Duolingo here. We Mm -hmm. lean into those types of companies that people are like, oh, Duolingo, they're they're just, they're a massive publicly traded company now. I Mm -hmm. might want to work there. Get creative. You know, at the end of the day, just get creative and and have fun with that creative to a greater extent, empower your Marcom staff to have a stake in that creativity. Mm -hmm. A lot of Marcom staff don't necessarily feel that they have a stake in the, the promotion and uh, 
presentation of their university beyond like writing a blog post or a press release or something like that. Mm-hmm. Get all those Marcom people ideas generating. Creative writing is extremely hard. Professional writing is hard. Like that is, it all comes from a source of innate creativity and we're not tapping into it. We can solve a lot of our creative problems internally. So when people hear all this and they want to reach out to you, they want to pick your brain, they want to continue the conversation, what, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RJTPITT. Um, you can find me practically everywhere on any social channel. Sorry, folks, my TikTok is boring and for class, so don't find me. <laughs> on you can email me rjtpit at gmail.com. And absolutely reach out, find me. I love to talk shop, swap ideas, mm-hmm. and really just enjoy connecting with other people and, and promoting the, the benefits of, of higher ed and, and helping people move their careers forward in that space. Well, thank you so much for, for this today. And, and I hope you stay happy, healthy as, as the world continues doing whatever it's doing. <laughs> Feelings mutual, Mr. Patch. Thank you so much.